live. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 76 was recorded live August 4th, 2011. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson, and this week uh, we have Claire from Egypt. How are you doing today, Claire? Hi there, Darren. I'm very well, thank you. Too warm. A little warm. Well, we've had warm, but I don't think anything like what you've had. <laughs> and then we also have on the line, we have Mac. How are you doing today, Mac? Pretty good. Glad to be here. Oh, it seems like it's been such a long time since we've had all three of us together at the same time. I know. But uh, we're back and ready to get going. So what we're going to do, we got a full chat room tonight. If you're not in the chat room, you're missing out. Uh, you can always click over on the Scuba Obsessed website, take a look, and participate. So we've got uh, quite a few, some of the regulars. Hopefully some new people come on in. And we'll go ahead and get started with the first article. Usually, don't like we say, we don't like to do these negative ones, but it's just so unique. Uh, such a new story, I think we've just got to cover it. And uh, there was a body found in Lake Tahoe. Uh, that they are presuming could be a diver missing for 17 years. The authorities are hoping that dental records will help determine whether the body of the diver recovered from Lake Laho was the man who reportedly went missing 17 years ago, the Sheriff's Department spokesman said. Uh, Sheriff's Department was alerted by another diver reported seeing uh, the body at a depth of 265 feet. Last Wednesday, a team of the Sheriff's Department using a remotely operated vehicle uh, with a camera located the body, and the body was still wearing dive gear. The uh, underwater shelf off Rubicon Point, which is near Highway 89, South Lake Tahoe. Uh, after locating the body, which took about four hours, they used a mechanical claw from the remote operated vehicle to the guy dive gear to pull the body to the surface. It had appeared the body had remained at depth due to the weight of the gear. Though the body was fairly well preserved by cold temperatures, authorities are hoping dental records will allow the coroner to make a positive identification. Uh, the body may be that of Donald Christopher Windecker of Reno, who was reported missing in July 1994, apparently a diving accident in the lake. Uh, archives show that he was then 44. He had a friend that dove down with him at about 100 feet in the lake at Rubicon Point when he apparently lost consciousness trying to ascend. Sheriff's officer reported at the time that he was lasting to depth of 130 feet descending with his breathing regulator out of his mouth. And the gear on the body appears to date to that time period, including the certification uh, on the scuba tank. Now, now, Mac, you mentioned that uh, you had gone through some of the uh, some other parts of the article, and there was something about the depth because of altitude. Right. It talked about Lake Tahoe being at uh, 6,225 feet. So they went through and gave calculations for the compensation for depth and diving at altitude. And they made one item that when the guy was at 100 feet, that's the equivalent of being at 180 feet in open water. So one report where the guy said he saw his buddy at 130 feet with the regulator out, well, that would have been a little over 200 and some odd feet in actual seawater. So it's very possible that the individual could have had some uh, nitrogen narcosis problems or even seizures at that depth. Wow. So just a just an unusual story. Uh, it does make you realize how much altitude does affect you. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, and you think about yeah. it, if you if you forgot that chapter in your open water, and then uh, you're out traveling around with your dive gear, you could easily make that mistake. Well, they made a comment that back in the 90s, of course, we all used our gauges and our, our timers. Uh, nowadays, a lot of people are using computers, and that would have complicated my understanding, according to the article, that mm-hmm. computers would have been at the advantage that it would have started giving you updates and you know giving you the data for your actual depth, not just 100 feet, but the equivalent depth. So, so with the equipment he had, at 100 feet, it would have just read 100 feet then. Correct. If you had like a capillary gauge, mm-hmm. something like that, absolutely. Which yep. is dangerous. Yeah, something, something to be aware of. My initial reaction, obviously, because I, um, my geography of um, America is not as it should be, but my initial reaction, not realizing that Lake Tahoe was at height, at altitude, I was, I was like, yeah, 100 feet, you know, yeah, maximum of an advanced diver, but not drastic. But yeah, obviously, we talk about altitude and really cold water. It's going to have a huge effect. It's, you know, takes it to a whole different ball game. Yeah. So you, even an experienced diver needs to get some good advice from somebody in the area and an update on your on your skills. Absolutely. Um, the next one we have is uh, this is a little short article, but Dan, the Divers Alert Network, uh, paid a fine to Connecticut for not being a registered business in that state. Uh, their profit division, which is the one that handles the insurance, so it does actually make a profit as opposed to the nonprofit uh, medical information side. Dan Services, the for-profit arm of the Scuba Safety Association that sells dive accident insurance, settled with Connecticut for $26,955. So, uh, And when you read through the article, they weren't the only one. There were many businesses who uh, paid up, and the article goes to say it's kind of a coin toss whether you really owe it or not, but I think many of them, just to avoid the legal fees, are going to pay. Yeah, when I first read that, I thought they meant that Dan had to pay 1.3 million. Until you read the article and found out theirs was like 20,000 or so. Still a lot to pay when I think the initial fee is like 120 dollars, if I read it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that does seem to be a little extreme for the for the fines, but. Uh, especially since it's a one-time fee. One-time fee yeah. for 40 to 120 dollars, and it costs you 20,000. Yeah, it's it, yeah. <laughs> you you have to pay the one-time fee of 40 to 120 dollars. And then you have an annual reporting fee that's typically uh-huh. 150 to 185. Uh-huh. So between the two, I mean, if they had paid them, depending on how many years they had been doing business there, but let's say it's 20, I mean, you're not anywhere near what they paid. Yeah. Uh, this next article is a follow-up to one that we covered last week, which was uh, you know them teasing NASA and some underwater. They had some underwater rock formations, and this one's almost like a video blog post. Uh, from Astrobiology Magazine, and uh, I won't read the whole article, but just to kind of give you the gist is that they've got this this huge team of scientists who are studying this lake. They have submerged vehicles, zodiacs, divers, scientists, interns, students, and they're collecting samples. Uh, they've got like Ziploc bags where they're taking uh, uh, micro samples in and then syringes. And really what they're doing is they're saying that these rock formations uh, could be some of the oldest living structures still currently being formed, at least when they compare them to trees. Uh, said uh, some of these, uh, although the rocks themselves are not alive, if the bacteria are indeed involved in shaking them, it seems like the oldest living structures on Earth, older than ancient redwoods. The one the photographs may have been thousands of years in the making, which means slowly growing in Kelly Lake throughout the course of modern human civilization. 
Did you go? If, did you go through the whole thing? Yes. I, I went through a little bit. One, it's worth looking at because the photos are very, very good. Meaning very sharp and clear. Mm-hmm. You have some good, good shots of what they're looking at. Second, this is interesting because it's also at a higher altitude. The lake here in British Columbia, since we just talked about that, that's sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. And third is if you clicked on on the uh, first section, they've got a um, highlighted micro. Can't even pronounce it. Violite. Uh, yeah. Few pronunciations. If you click on that, that gives you some really interesting information on this whole thing. It gives uh, pictures, part not cartoons, but pictures, diagrams, and some close-ups. It's quite interesting. A lot better. Last week when we talked about it, I was a little negative. Uh, this is actually pretty interesting. It's as far as science and underwater goes, this is really neat. But yeah, the others was just uh, you know media filtering it to be something exciting or or spectacle yeah i like that the second site from it's really good it's got oh pictures. wow they look like then on the bottom it's got the mapping uh it, it's pretty interesting actually yeah mound morphology component morphology height all the documenting there's a lot to be learned from what they do this is they're, they're they this is the real serious stuff yeah quite interesting like been quietly working sorry go ahead i was going to say they've been quietly working away and come up with some really interesting stuff. And as you're saying, saying, they're saying about possible links, well, saying that from what they've discovered here, it might even help them with discovering whether life has existed on other planets as well. So really interesting. Very cool. So there's a follow-up from last week. And then just kind of a little blurb from the USGS newsroom there. Press release, Federal Dive Team conducts underwater survey at the mouth of Eloa River. Scuba divers from the USGS and the Environmental Protection Agency are exploring and cataloging marine life at the mouth of Washington's Iwa Elwa River. That was the one you are talking about, Mac. The underwater survey yep. is taking place downstream of Elwa and Glines Canyon dams, which are being removed over the next three years, starting in September. The primary goal of the dive surveys is, not under, is to learn how underwater plants and animal life react to the adapt the downstream effects of the dam removal, provide scientists with a more detailed and complete picture of the ecological restoration. So that will be very interesting because we hear a lot. I mean, I, I live within uh, two miles of a dam here, and everybody likes to slight the dams. I I mean, I can see the positives and negatives. You, know, you got, uh, I mean, the green power. I mean, you want to talk about green power, you got that's uh, the you know, hydroelectric from the dams is very green. Uh, but then a lot of people are saying that that harms the ecosystem with the, the fish and animals, not uh, wildlife, not being able to navigate up and down the river as they would normally. What I found interesting about this one, though, this obviously is a, a larger dam than our near ones. They're talking about 19 million cubic meters of sediment, enough to fill 11 football fields. The height of the Empire State Building is accumulated behind the dam. Now, you take the dam away, that stuff is going to go downstream. That can definitely affect what's going on downriver. I would love to see see what this looks like. That'd be interesting to get some footage because, I mean, you've seen what that sediment's like. It's just plain mush. So I, what I predict is that you're going to have, like, the center of the river or wherever the new center ends up becoming, that will all wash down. But the rest of it is going to just kind of sit there and be this gelatin slime that will eventually dry up and probably turn into a dusty mess. You're saying great saying it will create turbid conditions for about five years for some seasons. Oh, certainly. It's quite, quite dramatic. 
I wonder if there's any market for any of that sediment as like fertilizer for fields. Well, the other thing I think I'd be worried about is heavy metals. And it's like the St. Joe River when they were doing some dredging. You got mm-hmm. cat and lead, uh, all sorts of um, items, well, heavy metals that you really didn't want to take out and put in somebody else's field. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I know from from dredging that can be the case. but Well, this fits sort of to home, too. Uh, there was an article in the Herald Palladium last week about taking the dam away. It's, it's, it's pretty much shot now, but the dam there in uh, Coloma, uh-huh. where the paper mill used to be, there used to be a, a dam in the St. Joe River as it goes through there, Pawpaw River, and they want to they want to get rid of the dam. Now, it's interesting. What effect will that have down there? Yeah. Now, how, how tall is that Coloma Dam? I'm not real familiar with that stretch of the it, river. It's not very tall at all because it's been basically taken apart. It's more like a spillway now. Uh, it may be oh, a couple of feet high, so when they knock that down, you're going to have a heavier flow. Um, it, to me, it might really make the, the conditions better. You'll have a better flow path. Yeah. I think some of that, just you do it in time and, you know, watch for natural damage to those dams because we've got the uh, Niles has the French uh, Paper River Dam, which that one I would say is probably, depending on the time of the year, maybe a 20-foot dam, 20-foot dam. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe what what would that be? Uh, seven, eight meters. So, but but yeah, the Bering Springs Dam that's quite a bit larger. That would be what probably thirty meters, wouldn't it? Yeah, but nineteen million cubic meters of sediment, eleven football fields. That's got to be a pretty good sized dam and yeah. pretty good depth too. One thing. Yeah, that that sounds like that's a a larger you know like reservoir. You know, unlike the ones we have where they're you're pretty much just creating rise in the river for hydroelectric purposes. Yeah. Uh, now, something uh, we didn't have in the news this week, but did you see, Mac, that they've gotten permission to close or that they were looking for permission to close the fish ladder at the Bering Springs Dam? No, I had not seen that. Yeah, they're preparing for the Asian carp to be moving into the Great Lakes, and they want to be able to prevent it from going upstream. Well, there is that big article last week, especially in the Chicago area, talking about isolating the uh, the river, the Mississippian, and all that from the Great Lakes itself, totally isolating it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I gosh, I mean, if you isolate it, that's kind of how it was before, wasn't it? I know they reversed the flow of that river and then connected it to the Mississippi. Well, so. it's just like when they dredged out up there at um, <clears throat> in uh, Lake Huron. Mm-hmm. as it goes down through St. Clair River. They dredged that out, and that created a lot of problems they've got now downstream. Yeah. Well, it also pouring at the lake level, and the other is the sediment that's collecting down there in Lake Erie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We did that to ourselves. Yeah, we're, we're good at that. Again. Now, Claire, in uh, Egypt, do they have many uh, hydroelectric projects? Um, they do, actually. The the one that they have in Egypt is the Aswan Dam, which is always at the top end of the Nile. Um, and a lot of our electricity apparently comes from there. I, I must admit, I've had huge issues because I think there's no um, solar electricity here. They're just starting to put streetlights in now that use solar power. Oh, wow. They've got the most sunshine in the whole world. Oh. And how come not every apartment here, every apartment that's built in Sharm should have solar power, for yeah. sure. But I think because they get cheap electricity from the Aswan Dam, they... Um, they just rely on that. But, yeah, they, there was a big issue with that. They had to actually move the, a whole load of relics from um, Aswan itself. It has all, like, temples and tombs. And that, 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 tombs. That's right. I, it seems like I remember yeah. I remember seeing an old National Geographic on it. Yeah. They had to be dismantled and moved up 
so that they obviously didn't get um, flooded, but they would have made a great dive. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. That's, that's true. I, I can't go by a boat without wondering what it would look like on the bottom. So. Yeah. So, yeah, but, yeah, we do have that, but obviously the Nile is the only water source in Egypt, really, so that's the only dam. Yeah. But again, it, it was quite contentious at the time because they were they did have to move all these ancient relics up higher so that they didn't get flooded. And as you say, as always, you've got issues with. Um, I mean, it's a bit difficult when it's a desert to say, well, what's about the nature? But there is a lot of life within the deserts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then also the water is valuable. It's got to be like gold. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's, there's um, again, issues with um, countries trying to cycle off too much water. I can't remember which country it goes through before Egypt, because you've got the Delta in Egypt, so it goes into the um, Mediterranean. And I'm trying to think which country... Is it Nigeria? Is, 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 is oh, Nigeria and Ethiopia, are they up there? Yeah, and they, they get the Nile going through there. I, I'm, my geography is going showing me up here. But um, there's obviously issues, you know, nobody, everybody needs the water. And obviously in Egypt, there's there's no other water, so they irrigate loads of it. There's like a strip of green, if you fly over it, there's a strip of bright green in this like orange desert. And nothing either side, quite dramatic. I'm just pulling up the map now, because now it drives me crazy, I can't remember where. <laughs> I know. <laughs> A little article on it talked about that. Let's see. I had a little note there. Think about it. Oh, after years of construction, the material in the dam is the equivalent to 17 of the Great Pyramid at Giza. That's a lot of material. A lot of earth. 17 times the period or the, the pyramid. That's how much material is in that dam. <clears throat> The other article said it uh, holds 196 billion cubic meters of water, and 17% of the lake is in Sudan. That's a big one. That is. Yeah, and then... No, we're still here. Can you hear me, Mac? I can now. Yeah, yeah, you've got the uh, Sudan there. I couldn't hear anybody for a minute then. Yeah, he was just talking about how much material... How many uh, pyramids was it, Mac? 17. 17 pyramids worth of material in that dam. Yeah. I realized the Nile River was about 160 miles in from source to the sea. That's yeah. a long river. Yeah, a, a little creek there. Yeah. Okay, the next one is uh, Diver Study World War II Era Shipwrecks to Prevent Pollution. Uh, and what they're trying to do is uh, is the they're asking for assistance in locating and surveying World War II era shipwrecks to look for oil leaking. The Office of the National Marine Sanctuaries is hoping that divers and fishing charters that visit sites like these may have a wealth of information and will share what they know. Seems like all you got to do is look for the oil slick. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we then... Have a, uh, we have a World War II shipwreck here. I've never seen any oil. Yeah. Well, one of the dive operators in the area says, if you think logically, it's been down there since the early 40s, 65-plus years ago. There hasn't been a problem in those 65 years that has caused a problem on the beach. Um, so many are just saying that there's, you know, any oil's probably long been gone. 
Well, I know on the Arizona in Hawaii, you still get an oil slick there, but that's been in a protected area. You know what I'm saying? It's not been disturbed a lot. It's, and that's, it's shallow. Yeah. So my, my thought is what happens is, you know, storms is what breaks us up. So you have a rough seas storm. During that storm is when that stuff's leaking up, and then that's all agitated. And what little volumes we're talking about probably break up. Oh, I would think so, too. Yeah. So, but yeah, they're looking for help. So if you're down there and you're on the wrecks and, but how would you even notice? I mean, you would know where the wreck is, but, you know, how would you, I mean, tanks are not something that you can easily see or even should be necessarily trying to see, you know, depending on the. You need to see the slick be on you or I, I can't remember the phraseology or the, how long it takes or how long it'll stay that way, but certain oils, depending on its density, as I understand it, make like little balls of, of tar. It looks like oily tar, but I don't know if that floats or if that's what you'd find in a hole or something, you know, a, a boat hole. Mm-hmm. We have some barrels on one of our roofs here, um, and you can see that they're, they're exactly as you said, Matt, it's like tar, and you can see like a little, it looks like a stream, but it, it doesn't go right up to the surface. It's, it's quite thick and, and gloopy. It does float because, you know, if you pulled it off, it just kind of, Yeah, Dave in the chat room is saying blobs of oil eking out are a little obvious. And he also volunteered if they've got some grant money that he would take that and do a study for them. <laughs> take a big sponge with them. Yeah, he could take a sponge even do a little cleanup. Uh, it seems yeah. like the, we had a news article last year, Mac, probably a little over a year ago, about one of the wrecks in uh, the Alaska area where it had sank and they were concerned. They were trying to put together a project to uh, suck it out of the tanks. And I'm, if I can remember right, and I should look that up, I think when they got to the point of actually getting ready to do it, they discovered there weren't any, there wasn't any oil left. And that was a 70s wreck. That wasn't a, you know, one from 40s. Okay. The This next one, Mac, uh, not really directly scuba related. Uh, NASA says they found an item in the East Texas Lake that is from the Columbia Shuttle. So when that broke up and went down, part of the debris went into this lake, and now that the water levels are low, this object is visible. So if had we been divers down there, we could have come across this. But look at the, at the picture. It looks like a big mushroom, a yeah. football mushroom. To me, it looks like an, an alien egg. And, and how would you know it's a NASA object? I, I wouldn't have. I mean, I just swim right, right by it. And unless there's a big tag on it that says NASA. I don't or, know. I mean, it's hard to tell in the photo. I can't zoom it up far enough. But is that like aluminum foil? I wouldn't think it'd be aluminum foil. It's much more substantial. And it's, uh, it says the tank provided power and water for the shuttle. Now, I don't know how the tank does both. Yeah. Well, they actually, if you look down, they, they updated at the end of the article that said the tank held uh, cryptogenic hydrogen, supercooled and liquid for the fuel cells. Ooh. All right. That's not aluminum foil. It's like a yeah, yeah, I mean, a, a little a little stronger than that. But I, I'm almost thinking that's like an insulation that was around it, but it's uh, broken up and 
out there. Dave says it looks like a big golf ball. I, I agree. But I, yeah. but there, I mean, when we talk about river diving and lake diving, here's some of the things you can find. This one just I'd happens. Bring You'd bring it up? Well, I think I would. The leaf works on shore. I look what I found. <laughs> yeah, you're going to need a little bit of a lift bag. Uh, the, oh, I'm not even going to pronounce this <laughs> police department. We can say his name is Sergeant Greg Sowles. Uh, he's at the lower water level, exposed larger than normal area on the northern side of the lake. A uh, tank will be retrieved and taken to a space center where other debris from the Columbia is stored. Well, I can, this is obviously the results. As I remember, uh, Texas has had over 30 some odd days straight of over 100 degree temperatures. And you can obviously see it's sucking up the water. Yeah, I bet they I wish they had some reservoirs there. Yeah, you could back up a little bit of water. And this next one is a very interesting article. Maryland, one step closer to identification of War of 1812 vessel. And I'll read quite a bit of this. Along with hushed waters and peaceful waterlands just upstream of the MD4 bridge over the Patuxent River, a barge with archaeologist Don Scuba Gear is visible from evidence of the turmoil that wrought the British nearly two centuries ago. Uh, researchers are one step closer to identifying the War of 1812 shipwreck as Commodore Joshua Barney's flagship, the USS Scorpion. After scuttling his flotilla, Barney marched on to defend the American capital in the Battle of Bladensburg. In Phase 2 of the search of the Scorpion, U.S. Navy and Maryland archaeologists are excavating, mapping, and filming the vessel thought to be Barney's flagships, a veritable time capsule as Maryland prepares for the War of 1812 Bicentennial. Now, that's interesting in itself, but then you go to the extent at which they're doing this. The survey began last summer as archaeologists employed a magnetometer, uh, which, as we know, is an instrument that detects metal objects to locate 200-year-old submerged ship. Archaeologists then used more precision-based instrument called a hydroprobe to pinpoint the wreck location further delineate the site. For the last several weeks through dense dark water, archaeologists have been dredging off a thick layer of sand overlaying the wreck in order to locate the bow, stern, and dimensions of the shipwreck. The measurements will help direct the placement of a coffer dam in 2012 and 2013. At that time, the dam will be dewatered and archaeologists will be able to dig for the wreck as a dry site. What do you think they're spending, Mac? Uh, you know, $4,000, $5,000 on this? Yeah. yeah. I, I really would like to know where the funds is coming from. Uh, we're talking about reducing the deficit a little bit. Yeah. I'm not quite sure to find something that's been down there for 200 years and was deliberately put there. But then again, that's just me. Yeah, Dave in the chat room, he says he's dove that river. He says it's all Braille diving, which I'm not <laughs> surprised. But I'm just amazed. A coffer dam. And then what type of permitting would it take to do this? I mean, say we found something in the St. Joe River. You know, just as equally historic, and we had a museum that would sponsor it. What kind of effort would it take to get to be able to get approval for this, even if you had it fully funded? Actually, you could, uh, and we do have one, by the way. It's at Canna. It's located in the St. Joe River up near the French Fort. Yeah. Uh, the way to get that out is, they had said, is to build a coffer dam around it and dig it out. But oh. you're talking some money, and I don't think you really had the funds to do that. Oh, okay. A lot of discretionary income. I mean, it'd be fun. I'm not holding it against them. I'm just, it just seems one of those things that'd be kind of tough to get to get funded and done. Well, return on the investment. Yep. Well, I'm, I mean, they're they're getting some publicity and they're trying to get it done for their their bicentennial. They're looking for funding for the dam. That's why. They're... It's partially funded through the Federal Transportation Enhancement Program which thanks to us raising our debt ceiling can be <laughs> paid probably. 
funds uh, which non-traditional <laughs> community-based transportation-related projects. I'm not quite sure how that's a transportation-related project. I'd rather have them fix my road or fix my bridge. $185 million for 232 projects since the program began in 1991. So quite, quite, quite a few. If you go down to the bottom of the article, there's some other links that you can follow on to something else. Right. The Scorpion link is interesting because it actually shows some pictorials and stuff. So that might be worth somebody to gander at. And then our last article of the night is the uh, University of Florida study finds artificial reefs are actually an economic boom. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) We've been saying that all along. Uh, Reef will provide habitat for popular sport fish, other marine life pulled together, pulled in more than 253 million into the region during one year, the study found. That's an artificial reef. Though it costs nothing more than saltwater fishing license to use the submerged structures of fishing spot, anglers spend money on food, lodging, fuel, tackle, and other necessities. And any any shipwreck is an artificial reef, and the the money that comes in through that apparently the fishermen here makes more money than the pyramids. So. Now looking at what they charge to do the reefs ranges from twenty thousand to sixty thousand a year for each mm-hmm. country, therefore or county. Uh, that's a pretty good return on your investment. And it encourages marine life, which again is for the environment. Well, it was least interesting to see how they did a return on the investment for what they've spent here. So it's one of those, you may be taking grant money to put something in, but you're getting something way and above what you spent to get it. Yeah, I don't I don't think that was a bad investment at all. What they say? Uh, we needed $60,000 per county, and you're getting millions back. And they geez. broke that down. That return for investment was pretty good. They broke it down to in-state and out-of-state. And out-of-staters were, as I recollect, just a little bit different than the uh, in-state, like $117 million from out-of-state. Not bad. No. Well, and and I would wonder what we could do here in Michigan. I mean, that's when I see that, that's what I always think is, you know, why don't we have something like this? And I know that we it's now something legal for us to pursue if we could just get the funding. So, of course, it's good for the environment as well. I mentioned before, I don't know if it got lost, but it was good for the environment as well because obviously anything like that encourages more sea life or more aquatic life if you're in the lake, especially water life. You know, you get the fish coming in, everything else that's got to be good for the lake and all the sea fishes that you put on the fishery. 5,600 southwestern Florida residents use artificial reefs every day for higher fishing enterprises, fishing guides, charter boats, party boats. Counted for $90 million in spending and artificial reef support, 2,500 full and part-time jobs. Researchers use a combination of mail, telephone, and email to collect survey responses. So I just think, uh, Mac, back on uh, what our preserve regulations are here in the Great Lakes, it has to be a wreck of historic value, and you're allowed one. So, But isn't if we sunk a boat that wasn't meant to sunk, wouldn't that make it historic? I don't think so. I guess that's newsworthy, maybe, maybe not historic. So, well, that does it for the news for this week. Uh, We'll go ahead and slip into the next segment of the program where we get to talk about last week's dives. Claire, I'm sure since we last talked, you've gotten quite a few dives in. What what kind of dives have you been doing? I've done a few. I kind of lost track. Um, (laughs) Yeah, predominantly, the last couple of weeks, actually, I've been doing quite a bit of teaching. So it's been, it's been great, actually. I'm teaching a family at the moment. They thought they'd do something different for their holiday instead of lying on the beach. 
and and they're really nice as well. They all get on really well, and they're all loving it. We're going to be doing our last two open water dives today, and if, yeah, they've worked really hard. It's been really good fun. And the week before, I was private guiding a young lad who was 12. No, he wasn't 12. He was a scuba diver. He didn't get his full certification. So I was private guiding him, and we had to sit to 12 metres, so the others had obviously got off a little bit deeper. And I think with him, actually, I don't know if there might be uh, an issue with maybe attention deficit or something, because when I, I did a scuba review with the, the whole this is another family, the whole family, three of them. And when he was with the others, it was really hard to get his attention and get him to think about his diving. And it was just him and me, private guiding him, and his father and brother went off on the deeper dive. He was absolutely focused and sweet as in the water, really good. It's really good to see the improvement, actually. So it's been, yes, teaching mode this week. So I'm getting people to sort their buoyancy out and uh, learn how to dive. And yeah, it's good fun. I enjoy teaching. I, I enjoy both. I enjoy teaching and guiding as long as I'm not constantly doing one or the other. So it's been, it's been cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I <laughs> remember following you. I can't remember if it was Google Plus or Twitter, but you mentioned that you uh, ruined some, some new students because their first dive, they saw some rays. We've had some amazing dives, yes. Um, this lad was one of them. We uh, saw Manta Ray who just swimming along on our second dive. Three days on the trot, the afternoon dive, I had something huge turn up. Awesome. I had a white tip we shot, quite a big one actually, turn up. And these are on dive sites that you'd never expect to see the big stuff normally. You know, we normally go looking for these guys off the big reefs in Rasmahamik and Turan where you've got strong currents and big drop-offs. And these are on the gentle, gentle dive sites, admittedly drift dives, and the currents were running a little bit. But yeah, three days on the trot, I had either manta ray, then a white tip reef shark, then a manta ray. I was like, this is just, you know, <laughs> wow. very, 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 very lucky. Mm. And then I'm looking... Manta ray with nose to nose. Oh, nice. Mm. And I'm also looking yeah. at one of your posts on the weather. Uh, it looked like you were having 42 degree yes. days. Yes, it was about 105, something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. well over 100. Mm. And bizarrely for here, it's been a bit humid, not so much the last couple of days, but the first couple of days of course degrees, it was a bit humid as well. So I was just like, what's this sweaty stuff? I don't get sweaty. And normally it just evaporates instantly, so you, you don't suffer quite so much in the heat. But no, this, this time it has been a bit sweaty as well, so... But it really has been absolutely roasting. But again, that warms the water up, so you get like 29 degrees in the water. So I'm not complaining about that. I'm in a shorty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I, even, I even braid shorts and a rash vest the last couple of days off the beach because it's definitely 29, 30 degrees there. I was a bit cold. <laughs> oh, wow. Now, I understand your BC was starting to show a little wear. <laughs> Yes, yeah, my, I've been using, oh, bless it, it's about six, seven years old. It's done, and most of that has been in the Red Sea, diving in Sharm, working with an instructor. So it's ancient, and it's lived really well. I've, I've had one diva of my own, and then when that died, I didn't want to get a different one. I wanted the same one. I, I tend to find what I like and stick with it. So and when I found out that they don't sell the Diva anymore, they didn't make the Diva anymore, it's a company called Seacrest, Avalon Seacrest, 
they make the Diva ECD, except especially for women, and it fits me perfectly. You know? So anyway, I bought another one off a friend second hand, so by the time I finished with it, it was about seven years old, and as I said, all those years have been done working with an instructor in, in Egypt, so several dives a day, perching every day. And it, I think that was pretty good going, actually, really good going. But it had quite a few little patches where it had holes and things, and I had rocks shoulder dump and things like that. So anyway, I got a brand new shiny Lotus i3 the other day, and really, really nice. Yeah, again, designed for women, and um, made by the same company, Aquila. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, beautiful. It's got this really nice padding in the back that... Again, it's open cells, so it acts like a sponge. So when you go in the water, it doesn't make you float. It doesn't give you excessive buoyancy. It just soaks up the water so that you've got the padding, but no excess buoyancy, which I think was in, pretty inspired. And it's got this new I3 inflator system, which I must say I was a little bit dubious about. So I was thinking, okay, well, you know, surely the old corrugated hose is something that's not great, don't fix it, it's quite simple. But I will say, the big issue that I have, I was talking to you earlier, the big issue you have with students is getting them to realise that you have to actually get your whole body up, upright, and point the corrugated hose to the surface to deflate. A lot of people have got them all nice and horizontal as they're swimming along, so they lift the hose, and actually the hose is horizontal, so they can't deflate properly. Mm-hmm. Whereas with, this, with the I3, you just lift your shoulders slightly, literally, fraction, press the deflate, lever down, and you can feel the bubbles coming out of your shoulder. So it definitely, definitely makes that side of things much, much easier. It did feel very strange, though, when I first jumped in and I was like, where's the hose? Yeah. <laughs> Instincts to lift the hose to deflate. Exactly. It feels very bizarre, very bizarre. And but when you're diving, it's nice not to have it there. No, I always have to kind of flick it out of the way when I fold my arms. I Otherwise, it's all uncomfortable. So to not have the hose there is great. So, yeah, it's nice, nice and streamlined. All the, they've done all the dump valves so that they're much more streamlined. It makes the old BCDs, the big dump valves, look really clunky. So, yeah, they've, they've put a lot of thought into it. Nice. Now, does it still have the traditional butt dumps valves? It's... It has the butt dump is there, um, but you use the dump, the lever to dump. Now it has a traditional shoulder dump, but it's got a toggle on the shoulder dump, so I can still pull the toggle on the shoulder, the right hand shoulder, if I really want to dump a lot quickly. If I do that in conjunction with the lever as well, then it's really, really quick. And um, it doesn't have a toggle on the butt dump, but it looks like it's. You could actually swap it and put one with the top. It's got a little hole where I imagine you could actually fit the toggle in if you wanted it there. So it looks like you could actually put that in. But at the moment, the, the one I've got, the lever, does the butt dump. If you're slightly head down by a fraction, it comes out your butt. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> so it, it, it's going to find its way out then. Yeah. Whichever position you're in, when you press the lever down, then the air will naturally go out of the, the uppermost valve. And it's got bungee on the actual um, back inflate. It's, it's pretty much a wing style. And it's got bungee on it, so um, that actually helps deflate it. It's not just relying on the pressure of the water to, de- to deflate the jacket. So, yeah, it's not just a pretty picture, not just a pretty face, I should say. Excellent. So, I was very impressed. Nice. 
Nice, yeah. yeah. That's one of the next things up on my list is uh is uh, new BC after the dry suit. So. Did you get your dry suits? No, no. I I I I went shopping. I've been all over. Uh, I picked one of the hottest days of the year, and even in a uh, dive shop with air conditioning, I was roasting after about the fourth dry suit i was glad they didn't have any more to try on because i soaked through all the clothes i was wearing i had i I thought in advance so i had shorts and a t-shirt but then i also brought uh or tried on under you know like uh fourth element and undergarments to use so that i knew i had the clearance and man that is that was just plain brutal i mean when you're when you're prepared to to, when you're gearing up for an ice dive in the summer no. That was that was a little much, but I I went through and I've tried so many. I'm getting closer, but I keep going back and forth. You know, I keep going between dropping uh you know near three thousand dollars US or uh you know I can get something for around a thousand. So I keep you know trying to decide and and fit. That's kind of my thing. Is I I think whatever I get that I like how it fits me first is what I'm gonna go with. So I'm determined to get something. We're we're in the home stretch now. And I, I walked into the shops twice with money in my pocket, and they couldn't take it from me. Oh no! That's yeah, so I, uh, I, I did a little rant last week. I'll save the dive shops from a rant this week, but I'm kind of disappointed in the uh, dive shop retail environment. They're just, you know, I, uh, you know, my current profession is IT, but I did do a stint in re- retail management, so I know how to sell stuff. And these dive shops just don't get it. I mean, they they make it tough for you, you know, by not having sizes in stock or selection in stock. So, but we'll get there. We're we're gonna get a, a dry suit sooner or later. Yeah. Hopefully good. sooner. Yeah, otherwise you're gonna freeze. Yep. So so Mac, what kind of diving have you gotten in the last week? Well, I've been fighting a cold. So I'm not really doing much diving, but I think since last Thursday we did get like three or four at. Yeah, <laughs> only. Well, I meant not just me, but, you know, everybody else thought. Uh-huh. Uh, I think they, they did a little wreck diving on the 27th. Yeah, I, I saw that photo on the Mud Club site where uh, they Jim was doing the, Jim Schultz was doing the comparison of the two boats. <laughs> uh, we had that wreck night, uh, the uh, Lake Michigan wreck night dive on Havana. That was on... Uh, oh, that was Saturday. And and Jim Kleeman went on that one. Yes, he did. And then uh, we had the, the Minuteman call-up. Basically, we had a full boat turnout for the wreck dive on Sunday. Now, now, back on the, the night dive on Saturday, that was a night dive on the shipwreck, the Havana. That's correct. That's what, that's how different is it at night on that wreck? Uh, you can usually see fish at night. Uh, Were you able to this time? I, I wasn't on that one. I was up in the air taking pictures of it. Oh, okay. Uh, now I get it. Cause I, I, that makes sense now. You had the overhead pictures. Yes. <laughs> but you figure the, since that's only 48, 50, uh, 50 feet, they had nice warm temperature down to 40 feet because we've been averaging 75 degrees, 35 feet. Wow! So, so the, no thermocline then, just warm all the way to the bottom. Well, at 50, they had that thermocline because right there at the 40 foot where you hit that first thermocline, mm-hmm. so it's, it's gone down there. But their visibility, as I understood, was not that great. I hear maybe 20 feet, 25 feet. Yeah, I'm not surprised. That's kind of been my thought when that when you get to this part of the season where the thermocline's really stretching down there deep and that warm water's moving in that that viz does kind of go away with it. Yeah. Warmer viz. You got a lot of sand covering up the stuff still. So yeah. then on the other wreck, how did, I understand they didn't have the the uh, visibility that we've been having. Uh, well, that was Sunday. I was on that one, 
and uh, we did a little exploration diving. Meaning, had some other targets that were like 15 feet off the bottom, uh-huh. away from the other wreck. So we thought we'd go do a little expo- exploring. And uh, when you were out, I had back to that 60 and 80 foot biz. If you could be 20 feet off the bottom and have real good biz and do a 200 or so foot circle and look around. Uh, but thermocline out there again was 35 feet. It was 80 degrees on the surface water, 75. On a 75 degrees at almost 40 feet, and then it went down real quick. It was like 48, which wasn't bad at 80 feet. No, that's 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 about the warmest I've seen there. I think I saw looking at the uh, the buoy data, uh, we we had uh, just touched the 50s. Yeah. For a brief and, uh, little. I was doing one exploration dive out from the wreck, and in my circle, I came in and is at the back end of the wreck, uh, the post in the back. And you could see the you could see all the way forward, so that's 80 feet to the anchor. So I had 80 foot visibility. Well, that's not bad. Well, no, it isn't. Uh, and it did get the knot out of the downline. So oh, nice. Yes. So you can actually get the tagline now off the surface buoy, or I should say off the submerged buoy, which is only six foot down now. Wow. So how much work did that take to get up? Because I know that you you know pressure and buoyancy really draws home when you're sitting there trying to fight with a 20 gallon buoy. Well, Jim drug it down to the bottom, put around the mast part, and then got the knot out and then let it back up. Ah, uh, okay. So I, I, I would have sucked a lot of air doing that. And you say Jim, was that Kleeman or Schultz? Schultz. Schultz, okay. Yeah, he got down there. And he, he, I think he had the, one of the bigger tanks, so he was down there a little longer than, than I was. Yeah. My 20-minute down and my five-minute deco and all that crap. Uh-huh. And I lost you again. Or all nope. the noise, by the way. No, I'm still here. Okay, there's absolutely no noise right now. It's like, wow. Yeah, that's uh, Claire, I think, has uh, lost her connection. Okay. Uh, so Sorry, I'm back. Oh, no problem. Uh, we still have not been able to reacquire a couple of those large objects. It's difficult time. Uh, and that's uh, got some water time in on the silk feet. You know, with those people with all their boats, they hot out on between the swim feet and the um, you're starting to break up just a little bit, Mac. Oh, I can hear you good, but all I was saying is that area between the swim area and the south pier, we uh-huh. not, not detected that. Oh, excellent. And that was fun. And then they had the uh, night dive at Gull Lake on uh, Wednesday. So that's the diving for the week so far. <laughs> that's, that's been good. And, and uh, if you're listening to the show and you haven't been diving this summer, what are you waiting for? At least in uh, the Midwest of the U.S., we've had some amazing weather. You can't beat this. You need to be out there diving. You know, uh, I can't think of anything that I would rather be doing. So do we have any plans for this weekend, Mac? Well, I'm going to be down in Plymouth playing with airplanes. Oh. And I, I think they're going to try to get back out and do some more exploring. And uh, who knows, who might people might want to go out for the structure dive who haven't been out there. Uh-huh. Well, I, I saw that uh, during this podcast uh Bob is trying to contact me, so I'll have to call him back and see what he's got planned. And then, Claire, I'm, I know you're going to get some dives in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish off this open water course, and I'm hoping they want to do some more diving, actually. They're here for a couple of weeks, so they might want a couple of days off because they're not used to getting up at 6.30 on their holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, Maybe after a day or two off, I'm hoping that they want to do some diving so I can show them around the reefs and introduce them to a bit of 
what we've got here, so that should be nice. If not, I'll probably find I'll do something else. Maybe some guiding, some guiding would be good. Um, getting out to Ras Mohammed at the moment would be lovely because it's just heaving the fish, so it'd be really nice to go there. Excellent. So yeah, I didn't, I actually, talking about diving, I didn't get a dive in this last week. I had a friend who was doing a demolition derby, so I went and helped him out as, as much as I can, which isn't much. I'm much better with dive gear than I am with cars, so I was more the gopher, if anything, but uh, uh, had a good weekend, but ready to get back in the water. Uh, also, uh, you know, on the Scuba Obsessed Facebook page, we had a comment from Rich Fegley. I'm probably mispronouncing his name, too. Apologies. Uh, he says, I'm not sure if you figured this out yet, but the Florida spiny lobster mini season is for non-commercial use. So sport divers like ourselves can go and catch some for personal use. Also, no traps can be used. Regular season commercial boats can set traps as well. So what uh, Mac to kind of answer our question yesterday, what was the difference between last week between the two day mini season and the regular season? That's it. The mini season's recreational only. Oh, okay. Which which makes it nice. You know, you kind of, uh, I guess that's kind of like having a, a, a trophy season, so to speak. Less competition. Yeah. So you get the choice picks right at the beginning. So thanks, uh, Rich, for posting that because we didn't get it. Also, uh, head on over to the Scuba Obsessed forums. Uh, go to scubaobsessed.com. Click on the forum link. We've had a little activity. I've been fighting spammers, so we're looking for moderators if anybody wants to volunteer to be a moderator i think i've got the spammers under control for a little bit but we do have things if you do if you have used gear that you want to post out there even if you posted it on ebay and you want to give a link from the site as long as you're not doing it commercially if you're just selling your own gear that's fine and we actually have somebody who is selling a cascade system with 10 tanks and a compressor that's, so a pretty good, that's a pretty good unit. I think he's got less than 4,000 total hours on all the all here. Yeah, I was trying to read that gauge. There's a little bit of a light, so it's either 4,000 or 84,000. <laughs> we'll assume it's 4,000. Oh, for the time? Yeah. Yeah, it's less than 4,000 hours. Yeah, so that's good. That's uh, And then uh, our good friend Rich Sinewick of Diver Sync, uh, he's actually a compressor technician, so I almost who's going to drop him a line and say, is this a good deal? Not that I'm in a position for a, you know, a $17,000 compressor, but, uh, I mean, if you had a dive operation and you needed a, a system, and I'm trying to figure out what they were using it for, 10 tank cascade? Yeah, it's just like Wolf's only instead of a couple, he's got a bunch. Yeah. This is, uh, you know who this is, don't you? No. That's Maribeth's in-laws. I think it's their son-in-law. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And he has that dive shop, and he's now concentrating on building uh, the underwater camera cases as opposed to operating the dive shop. So we oh, does he have the, the Equa? Oh, what's that? I can't think of the name of the case either, other than they're good, they're expensive. and. Uh... So is he getting out of the dive shop altogether? That's my understanding, yes. Yeah, Dave's saying that's about due for an overhaul, which he's right. That's about the the time period when the overhaul goes through, which I'm sure he's that's what they're trying to avoid. But and then probably the same thing on the tanks. I bet you all those cascades need to be hydroed before you could transport them full. Normally, you're not going to transport those. Yeah, so I guess if you drain them down, that would make them legal to transport. But yeah, yeah. 
I'll have to look. I have to look that. So I didn't realize that she she was related to them. Oh. Yeah. So that's uh, one of the members of the dive club, her relative. I didn't realize they had posted that on the board. Yeah, so it's a nice one out there. Also had a few uh, new divers out there posting on the board. Somebody going through their open water class, and they were saying how they're a little surprised how much effort it's going into learning to dive, where they originally had, you know, as kids, you know, swimming was just jumping in the water and swimming, and now all the the book works. So I'm trying to figure out what their challenge is, trying to give them a pep talk. But uh, you know, when you learn open diving, you got to stick with it. I was surprised when I went through my open water course what gave me fits and that it seemed to be equalizing took me by surprise it didn't take long to figure it out but until you did you had some doubt whether this is going to be something you could overcome yeah that happened to me my first ever dive yeah i i was in the i was in the pool and this is the pool the bridgman pool only goes to about 15 feet deep and it's the diving area where they have the high dives and you, you kind of went over the you know and i, and I surface dive all the time before then you know call it snorkeling or whatever and never had a problem but you know you're breathing on air and you're going down and i just had that shooting pain you get from not equalizing going what the heck is this and yeah. until i realized how hard you had to blow to equalize i couldn't go down you know the rest of the class is going down and you know because you're kind of sizing up the class you're like ah these people all green out i'm not gonna have any problem with this and yeah and then chat yeah, and then chat room we have uh, somebody saying that their biggest problem was a full face mask removal in uh, open water, and I know a lot of people have problems with uh, clearing masks. I I did that. That was my big big issue. I I stood up and do it. I love but I, I love the diving so much that I gritted my teeth, and luckily I had patient instructors who let me try several times <laughs> mm-hmm. and but it makes me sympathetic to people and understanding when people do have a problem with that and i've come up with so many different tips to ease people into it and it's such an important skill at the end of the day so it's it's not fun for a lot of people that one yep so we had that going on and i was trying to get to itunes i'm gonna try and click on over and see if we can get to that five-star review. We've had a couple uh, five-star reviews. We like those. If you go over to iTunes, uh, uh, also you can uh, follow us on Twitter. If you're also on Google+, Plus, I've started playing around with that. You can follow me there. I'm uh, Darren Jilson on Google+. Plus. So I uh, was starting to get some scuba followers. Still trying to figure out Google+. Plus. I've, I've got the basics, but I'm sure I'm not using all the features and haven't quite figured out the etiquette. So Yeah, I, I'm still playing with that one. Uh, but that, but uh, playing around with that, and uh, let's see what else do we have? Uh, uh, Gall Lake, uh, Twitter, everything. I think I think that just about does it for this week. Uh, do you have anything else you want to cover, Mac? Nope. About the only other item is on that compressor. That was three thousand hours, not four thousand. Three thousand. I just looked it up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Nope. Uh, I'm just looking for a good weekend for everybody. For anybody jumping or diving or having fun out there. Okay. Okay. And then uh, you got anything to, to plug, Claire? Um, no, just the Dive Bunny site. Pop along, diving for girls. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's it, really. Yeah. Okay. So that, and that's uh, divebunny.com? Divebunny.com, yes. Excellent. Excellent. And then uh, don't forget the Scuba Obsessed uh, website or the Facebook page. On the Facebook page, my son today, you know, he's still on his summer vacation, uh, went and created a logo. So I went and posted that out there, so. You know, give him some thumbs-ups or likes if you like that. I was kind of impressed uh, 
It's uh, very cute. It's cool. It is. So he, he had yeah. fun doing that. And, uh, and he's determined, uh, uh, in one of my past lives, I used to do airbrush and the, both my son and daughter decide they, they want to learn how to do that. So that might be one of my projects this weekend. Plus my lawnmower is back, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I had, I hadn't mowed my lawn in about six weeks. So now the lawnmower is back from the shop and working. So I probably got, uh, 20 hours of mowing. I only have 12 acres. So, uh, that might, that might take some time, but, uh, diving comes first, I think. Just Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, on that note, why don't we go ahead and head over to the bad scuba joke of the week? Everybody, everybody ready? I'm braced. Braced. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, The crusty old-time captain is breaking in a new navigator on a scuba liveaboard. The captain opens his briefcase, pulls out a thirty-eight, and tucks it in the waist of his pants. He asks the navigator, Know what this is for? No, sir, replies the newbie. I use it on navigators that get us lost, explained the captain, winking at his first officer. The navigator opens his briefcase. He pulls out a forty-five and sets it on the chart table. What's that for? asks the captain, a little surprised. Well, sir, replies the navigator, I know we're lost before you will. Okay. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> I didn't hear any booing, so I had to. No, no booing or hissing. Not even from the chat room. So, until next week, for uh, myself, Jim, Don, Claire, everyone, uh, go out there and get wet. And be safe. Happy diving.